Ladies, my name is Lauren Brown, and I'm glad that you are here because not only, I'm just going to keep talking, that's all right. Not only do we know from what Josh has said that the Lord has called each one of us here, but I believe that the Lord has called each one of us to be in this session as well. So I'm thankful that you have devoted some of your morning and some of your time to be together. So I pray that this will be an encouragement to you. It has been a wonderful encouragement and conviction to me. So I want you to, if you have not yet met, I'm from Grace Community Church in LA. My husband and I have been there for many, many years. The, he's known as Larry the Legend. We love Larry Brown. My husband is a stockbroker, and so he always works in the financial markets. And so he's on the, the East Coast, and he works no matter where we go. So he's been trying to work here, but the computers have been very, very difficult. And so we're on wireless, and it's just kind of been coming in and out, and it's hard for him to do his work and kind of change positions and respond to things. So when he, he's been trying to work through to get something that's a little more consistent, but the first thing that people say when he calls his office in New York or when he calls Glorietta here and he says, I'm having a problem with my computer, what do you think the first thing they tell him to do is? Reboot it, turn it off, start it again. Because for some reason, whatever happens in that little alchemy when you shut your computer off and then you turn it back on, things happen there. I'm not a tech person, so I have no clue, but the first the first instruction they always give is reboot your computer. And that's a little bit what camp is like on a spiritual level. We're here to reboot ourselves because whatever is wrong and all of those little things that are cluttering and all of the stuff that we begin to fight, this week is about putting all of that aside and rebooting ourselves so that we can focus on what's important. So today, the title of this, Austin Stole, but because Austin I love and he's our elder, he was talking yesterday about being nearsighted, and that's what we're talking about today. The title of today's session is Are You Nearsighted? And Getting Your Life in Focus. And I think it's really appropriate for what we're going to look at. But when you came and you saw that there was going to be a session just for girls, what did you think that it might cover? Lauren Bradley, what do you think it might have covered? Where are you? <laughs> Lauren Bradley, what do you think a girl's session would cover? Okay, being a spiritual leader as a woman. What else? What would we cover when you think of topics that would be specific to us? What would some of those topics be? Mm -hmm. Okay, submission. What else? Biblical womanhood. Purity. What else? Emotion. That's a good one. Especially when you have no sleep. Emotions tend to come up to the surface a lot more easily. Any other thoughts? Vanity. We don't deal with that at camp at all, do we? Modesty. All of those things are specific to girls, are specific to women. And the Bible addresses all of those things. But we're not going to talk about any of those things today. Because we're going to talk about some other things that underlie those issues. 
So before we begin, if you would just bow your heads and I will pray to open our time together. Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to be here, thankful to get away from our normal lives and responsibilities, and to have the opportunity to sit under your teaching, to hear your word preached, to have time set apart when we can be in your presence, just you and us, to hear from you, to be still, to be quiet, to separate ourselves from all of those things that distract us so that we can learn from you. We thank you for this, Lord, and I pray that you would bless this time now. Help us to pay attention to what you have to say to each of us. May we put aside all of those other things that we are thinking about just to be in your presence and to hear from your word. We pray that you would be honored by this time, and it is for your glory. And in your name we pray. Amen. So... In preparing for this, I did my favorite research on the web, and I want to share with you some of the things that people in the world talk about teenage girls and what are some of the issues that teenage girls face. So according to one website, here are the 10 most common teenage problems for girls. Appearance, education, dating, bullying, friendship, self-esteem, peer pressure, substance use, menstruation, and depression. From a different website, these are the most common problems that teenagers face. Some of them are the same, some of them are different. Self-esteem and body image, stress, bullying, depression, cyber addiction, drinking and smoking, teen pregnancy, underage sex, child abuse, peer pressure and competition, and eating disorders. So you can see that a lot of this is from the culture in which we live. So this next list is from a website that is specific for Christian teenagers, topics that are unique to those who call themselves believers. And these are questions that teenagers ask when they feel like they can be anonymous, which is an important caveat. I'm going to go through multiple ones of these. How do I know what God's will is? How can you tell what music is good and what's bad? What do you do if you have parents or siblings who are living the wrong way? They live one way in church and then another way at home. What do you do with your dad on the internet? How do you avoid wrong influences when you live with them? How do you take a stand with your friends? What do you do with a friend who's becoming rebellious? How do you separate bad friends without hurting them or making them think that you're stuck up? How can I be a witness with my friends and still be accepted? What's dangerous or wrong with being physical before marriage? Why is it so hard to be consistent in the Christian life as a teenager? What is appropriate and modest clothing for a Christian girl and why? How do you get over a broken relationship, whether dating or friends? Why does God allow trials and temptations to come into our lives? What does having a relationship with God really mean? What does that look like? In dealing with authority, how can I explain things or make a point without sounding argumentative or disrespectful? Why do authority figures sometimes assume that they know what you're thinking? How do I deal with people and problems in my life that have hurt me? The questions and issues that these sites reveal are important, and they're important to think through because they're things that you face in today's culture. 
And thankfully, God's word has answers to all of those things. But those things, and what we had talked about at the beginning, those issues are symptomatic. And what I mean by that is that they are the reflection of what is the deeper issue. They are the external manifestation of what's going on on the inside. So when I chose this topic about are you nearsighted, you know what nearsighted is. Austin had talked about that. I'm nearsighted. And I have been nearsighted since I was a sophomore in college, in, in high school. And so I've been wearing contacts and glasses since then. It's the dilemma of seeing what's right in front of me, but I can't see with any clarity beyond that. And that means that you have the ability to only operate with what immediately surrounds you. The Mayo Clinic, which is one of the premier medical clinics in the U.S., estimates that there are 50 million people who are myopic. And that's about one in three people who have that problem. And thankfully, that problem can be addressed, as it was with me, through prescriptions, through contacts, through glasses, through whatever. But I would wager, and I am submitting to you, that everyone in the world has spiritual myopia. And we have spiritual myopia because we see what is in front of us. And sometimes it's hard for us to take that long view and to say, what is God doing that maybe I'm not seeing? What is God doing in the big picture? and to get beyond what is right in front of me. We can become so enmeshed in our present circumstances and the trauma and the drama that we face with the little things that we forget that God is at work and we forget that God is sovereign and we forget that his plan is bigger than us and his plan is bigger than our circumstances that we allow the problems or the circumstances that we face to determine our contentment and to determine our happiness rather than thinking and living with our eyes on heaven. But as my vision is corrected through a prescription and through direction, that problem, that challenge of not stepping back to see God at work can also be corrected. And you know the answer for that is in Scripture. And we've been exposed to that this week. So you say, well, how does that make a difference for us as teenage girls? Why are we talking about this in a session for teenage girls? So I want to read something to you that Pastor MacArthur has written specifically about teenagers. And it's germane to what we are talking about. So this is his writing. So just go with me on this. Take a moment to walk with the average young person and see what he might encounter during a typical day. As he, inter as he visits his internet homepage, his eyes are assaulted with images of half-dressed celebrities parading the sin of an independent, immoral lifestyle. The DJ from a local radio station accompanies him on the way to school. It's usually someone with a crass sense of humor, filling his mind with contemporary lyrics that promote the way of folly. Along the road, he sees billboards advertising designed to arouse lust and create discontentment. Any time he spends with the world's entertainment portrays a very realistic form of make-believe. The typical television programs and movies glorify the mysterious, the exhilarating life of a rebel Defiant, witty, violent, sexual, rich, playful, and utterly godless. 
and utterly unaware of the consequences. Before many teenagers arrive at school, their minds are already pondering the messages of all the images they've seen, the voices they've heard, and that's before eight or more hours of teachers and peer influence. It's a daily exercise in mind pollution. And it's no secret that our age in particular has turned defiance into a virtue and has made obedience something to be mocked. This warped and rebellious worldview comes through in every aspect of popular culture. Entertainment, music, newscasts glorify revolt, rebellion against every authority. Statistics show that the average child living at home in America watches at least 28 hours of television a week. And for teenagers, it's estimated to be between six and nine hours a day spent between screens, spent in front of screens. Programming that targets young people is often the very worst at glamorizing sin. By the time that teenagers graduate from high school, they've been overexposed to the grossest kinds of evil through entertainment media in mind-numbing ways so that nothing seems particularly appalling anymore. So what's the result? Drug abuse, violent crime, promiscuity, other forms of lawlessness. Large, disturbing subcultures exist among young people who practice bizarre forms of body modification. They immerse themselves in the occult. They openly practice other forms of antisocial behavior. Sin and rebellion have taken society captive, and their tragic effects are most vividly apparent in the culture of our young people. Scripture never discounts the female intellect. It never downplays the talents and abilities of women or discourages the right use of spiritual gifts. But whenever the Bible expressly talks about the marks of an excellent woman, the stress is always on feminine virtue. The most significant women in the Bible were influential not because of their careers, but because of their character. The message these women collectively give is not about gender equality. It's about true feminine excellence, and that is always exemplified in moral and spiritual qualities rather than by social standing, wealth, physical appearance, or power. So with that in mind and with that as that context, we're going to look to the Bible today for lessons that women can teach us. We know that there are lots of women in the Bible. Some people think that there aren't very many women who are represented in the Bible, but it's only because they just haven't looked. There are women whose stories are so encouraging and uplifting and help us know how to live. And then there are stories of women who are cautionary tales, who've made wrong choices and the consequences are lifelong. The Bible has approximately 600 examples of women who are mentioned and there are about 400 parables or prophecies that address or include women. There are, there are some dispute, but scholars agree that there are about 188 women mentioned by name in Scripture. And then there are hundreds of women who are unnamed, and they include queens, prophetesses, leaders. We have lots of wonderful women in the Bible to use as our role models of how to live. And in a time when most of the women who are included in the Bible didn't know how to read or write, and the culture was very separate, so they were, could have been excluded from spiritual life, 
It's amazing that these stories are here and are appropriate for us today. Jesus focused on women in his ministry. He didn't ignore them. He didn't think they were less important. He included women as his followers. And you need to know that being a woman matters to God. And as a woman, you matter to God. And God knows what you're walking through, and he cares about what you're walking through. Who are some of the women that you can think of in the Bible, either positive or negative, that are familiar? Ruth? Esther? Naomi? Jezebel? Deborah? Mary? Who did you say? Abigail? Lots of Marys in the Bible, yep. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth? Hannah? We know these stories, don't we? We know these women. They're there, and the Lord is so gracious to give us examples of women from whom we can learn. So today, we're going to learn from two of these women, two of the women who are familiar to you, familiar to me, but have great application for us today. So we're going to spend some time looking at Martha and Mary. Martha and Mary are mentioned specifically in three texts in the New Testament, We're going to be looking at all three texts, but the first text and the third text are the ones that specifically focus on Martha and Mary. They're included in the second text, but they're not the focus of the second text. The focus of the second text is Jesus. So as we go through and look at these texts, I want you to be listening for a spiritual principle in each of these texts and then the application of them. The first text is going to be in Luke 10, so turn there with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke 10, verses 38 to 42, about Martha and Mary. The story is so familiar. It's only five short verses, and it's a story that only appears in the Gospel of Luke. It doesn't appear in any of the other Gospels. But sometimes, because we've heard it so often, It's easy to overlook the depth of its meaning and its application. But we need to pay attention to this text because it reveals the highest priority in the Christian life. So read with me, beginning at verse 38. Now they were traveling along. Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. This text took place several months before the other texts that we will look at, and they portray Jesus and his traveling companions visiting what Luke describes in this text as the home of Martha in the town of Bethany. That's important because Bethany is about two miles east of Jerusalem. Bethany was a central destination that all of the pilgrims who were traveling to Jerusalem walked through Bethany to get to Jerusalem. So in his commentary, Pastor MacArthur speculates that these three siblings, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, were young. So they could have been high school teenage age 
we think from the interactions with Christ that he treated them much as he would a younger sibling, helping them, caring for them, loving them. So the lessons that Jesus taught are profoundly practical for you as high school students. So even if you know this story, it's good to be reminded of the truth. It's good to get that spiritual reboot. It's good to remember what is that spiritual priority for us. Martha, you know, was a very conscientious and very considerate hostess. She was concerned about making sure that her guests were cared for. She was making sure that everything was perfect. She was caring for those who were visitors in her home. But you can see in this text that very soon she became annoyed with Mary. Martha felt that she was the one who was doing all the work, while Mary was doing nothing. And you can imagine that scene, that Martha probably was making noise in whatever room she was preparing the food so that she was trying to get somebody's attention. She was perhaps sighing so that somebody would hear that and notice that there was something going on. She may have walked through the room trying to catch Mary's eye, like, hey, you got to get this together. You know, you're blowing it here. I'm doing everything. Sadly, this describes me a lot of times when there are guests in my home where I feel like I'm trying to make everything perfect and then they're just doing nothing. They're enjoying it, but I'm doing all the work. You see the escalation continues. It starts small and it grows and grows and grows and continues to the point where Martha had no subtlety and no civility. And Martha complained directly to Jesus. Martha started well, but she lost her focus pretty quickly. Her servant's heart was tempered by her sinful response and she was distracted. And she was thoughtless and disrespectful to Jesus Christ. She used words that were designed to hurt and surely to humiliate her sister in front of those other guests. Martha showed how easy it is for us to start well, but let pride corrupt us. Our intentions can be good and then they are derailed. Martha was doing a good thing by caring for her guests. That's important to remember because sometimes we just paint Martha as the, the evil person, the bad one who did everything wrong. Martha was doing a good thing by showing hospitality, but she lost the focus of her service and her perspective became focused on herself. She became nearsighted by seeing what was immediately in front of her instead of stepping back to see what the Lord was doing and look at the big picture. She made a choice to not believe the best about her sister's motives, and she became resentful, bitter, jealous, critical, judgmental, and her unkind thoughts quickly escalated into words and actions. That happens to us all the time. In verse 40, look at that. Martha even questions Jesus's motives. She asks him whether he even cared. What bold presumption to ask Jesus Christ that. But don't we do that sometimes? I do. I question God about whether he really knows what's going on, whether he really is making the best choice, because I think I know what is best. That's that myopia of saying, I see these circumstances and I think I can handle this. 
So I question God just like Martha did. And yet Jesus responds to Martha with such kindness and with such grace and gentleness. He doesn't judge her for her presumptuousness or her callous disregard of her sister. Jesus doesn't agree with Martha and he doesn't take her side. Look at the text. What does Jesus say? He rebukes her gently. He admonishes her. In verses 41 and 42, he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. The account in Luke ends there. So we assume that Jesus's words had a profound impact on Martha, as Jesus's words do all the time. Jesus got straight to the point. He got to the motive. He didn't address the circumstances. He got to the heart. And look again at the end of this text in verse 42 when Jesus says, only one thing is necessary. He's talking about priorities. What is better than everything else? And I want us to just briefly look at two other places in Scripture where the same language is used about one thing that is important. We're going to look at one Scripture in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, turn with me to Psalm 27, verse 4. Psalm 27, verse 4. Remembering that context of priorities, of the one thing that is important. David says... One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek. And what was that? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. David's focus was on seeing God and meditating on him. David's focus was on knowing God and being in his presence. That was the one priority for David. Flip back to the New Testament, to the book of Philippians in chapter 3. It's the same language that's used. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13. Paul writes, and this again is a familiar text. Paul writes, one thing I do. Again, we see the priority in his life, just as we read about the priority in David's life. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. There is a laser focus in these texts. First with David, then Paul, then Mary. What did they seek? What was the one thing? It was communion with God. It was being in God's presence. Christ's words to Martha, only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good part. Jesus is talking about the one most important thing for believers, and that's to hear God's word. It was spoken then by Christ, but it's heard today in the pages of Scripture. That's the foundation for all other spiritual duties and growth, and there is no substitute for it. Sunday sermons can't replace personal time in the word. Wednesday nights at church can't replace personal time in the Word. Family devotions cannot replace personal time in the Word. Reading Christian books 
cannot replace personal time in the Word. Fellowship with other believers cannot replace personal time in the Word. And even prayer cannot replace personal time in the Word, but prayer flows from that personal time in the Word. There's a book called Spiritual Disciplines, and the author writes, in the Bible, we learn the ways and the will of the Lord. We find in Scripture how to live in a way that's pleasing to God as well as best and most fulfilling for ourselves. So as we remember that contrast between Martha and Mary, they had completely different personalities. Martha was brash and active and out there, kind of like Peter. Mary, we know, was quieter, contemplative. They had very different ways of approaching life, but they shared one thing in common. And both women loved Christ. And even with the women that we see throughout the Bible, that is the common characteristic for women in Scripture. That who are noted as praiseworthy, these women have one thing in common. That is to love Christ. That's the consistent characteristic. And all of these women point to Christ. The Old Testament women had an expectation of Christ who was to come. The New Testament women, they lived Christ. They were be- Christ was beloved by them in the New Testament. So as we consider Martha and Mary, we have to remember that we can't be too harsh on Martha because a lot of us are Marthas. Martha loved Christ. Her faith was real, but she neglected the needful thing, and she kept herself busy with lots of stuff, and that's what we do. We fill our lives with lots of things, with lots of screens, with lots of friends, with lots of distractions, and we can lose our focus, and we can become unbalanced. And Jesus was so gentle in his admonition to Martha and reminding her that worship And fellowship with him was what was most needful. And that's what we need to do as well. We need to remember that service, even though service is good, that service for Christ should always come second to worship of Christ. So the principle here is that what we believe is more important than what we do. The Old Testament Jews wrestled with that balance of doing and believing because you remember that the Judaizers in the Old Testament insisted on the ritual of circumcision. They said that circumcision was necessary for justification. They denied that faith alone was enough. They said it was faith plus something else. But that negates the entire purpose of the gospel, the entire meaning of the gospel, which is grace alone by faith alone in Christ alone. It's always grace. It's always the work done by Jesus. So the application for us is what do we add to the gospel? What are we trying to add to Jesus's work? And then it'll be complete. Are you looking for your parents' approval? Are you looking for Christ and good grades? Are you looking for Christ and a boyfriend? Are you looking for Christ and something, anything more? When we try to add to the work of Christ on the cross, that should be a red flag for us that we have left the simplicity and the purity of single-minded devotion to Christ and one thing that is needful. 
So maybe it's the time for us now to have that spiritual reboot and say, what do I need to put aside to remember to focus on Christ? I want to turn to the next text that we're going to look at, which is in the Gospel of John, just one book over. The Gospel of John in chapter 11. We find the next story with Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus, but the main character in this story is Jesus. The Apostle John puts this story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead before this next story that we'll look at. But it actually happened in opposite order, and we'll see that as we read. So look with me at verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Martha and her sister Mary. It's interesting to note that the Apostle John expected his readers to be familiar with Martha and Mary. Even though they were very common names, there were a lot of women with those names, but John wanted to make sure that the people, his readers, understood who these women were. So he identifies their village as Bethany. And then he goes on to write in verse 2, It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. We're going to see that as our third text in John 12. But John wanted to make sure that his readers knew who Martha and Mary were because that context was really important for what was to come. So we know that they're the same sisters who were in Luke's story of service. In verse 3, it goes on to read, The sisters sent word to him, to Christ, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. It's interesting to note that the sisters never said to Jesus, Lazarus was sick, Lazarus was dying. We don't have a record of that here. They only communicated that he was sick, his death was imminent. Note that they did not request anything specific either. But we know from the context that this family loved Jesus. Jesus loved them. They were in a time of intense, terrible sorrow and grief. And they were communicating with their friend, Jesus, to come to be with them. There's a lesson for us in how we communicate with God. Not by suggesting what we want, what we, the proposed outcome will be. Not by telling God what should happen. But just saying, God, this is what's going on. They reached out to Jesus in their time of need for comfort, strength, encouragement, and that's the lesson for us as well. We can reach out to Christ in our time of need for comfort, for strength, for encouragement. Verse 4, look at that. It has an important point for us. Some would say it's the most important point in this entire story, which is, when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. God's glory is the purpose of this miracle of Christ raising Lazarus from the dead. God's glory is the purpose of all things, of all details, big and small. Paul sums it up in Romans 36 when he says, from him, through him, and to him are all things. The principle here is that all things work together for good. All things work together for God's glory. Romans 8.28 is a familiar text. And what peace and comfort can be found for us knowing that God's glory also is our good 
And we need to remember that, that God does not design things or allow things that would be harmful for us. They're designed for our good so that we can grow in the grace and knowledge of him and grow to look more like him. We need to be reminded of God's big picture with that, to remember that he is at work, God is still on the throne, God is still sovereign, and if we are his children, we can trust in his perfect care for us no matter what we face, no matter what challenges there are. God's perfect care is there for us. So the application is, are you trusting God with what's going on in your life? Or are you distracted by what surrounds you and you're not focusing on the one who sustains you? Where in your life have you not been trusting God? When we continue in that text, before the trip to Bethany, we saw that Jesus had performed so many miracles, changing the water to wine, healing the blind men, feeding the 5,000. In John 21, 25, it says, Jesus did many other things as well, and if every one were written down, even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Jesus had done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things. But when Martha and Mary called Jesus to come because their brother was sick, it led to that miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. And that's what put the Jewish leaders over the edge, which led to that big picture of redemption that Christ was willing to go to Jerusalem. He was willing to take the cross to pay for our sins. Look down at verse 20 to 27. Martha said, when she heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. Mary stayed at the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. This sets up an amazing opportunity for Jesus to ask Martha what she believes and who she thinks Jesus is. In verse 21, Martha reaches the Lord and says what was foremost in her mind, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Her grief was real. Her faith was growing. She says, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Mary didn't fully understand who Christ was, but this gave Jesus the opportunity to grow Martha's faith. And so he asks her in verse 27, do you believe this? Do you believe who I say that I am? Do you believe that I'm the Messiah, the Savior? And she says in verse 27, Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Martha's proclamation of faith in the midst of her life-transforming sorrow and grief is stunning. It's a glorious thing. Jesus was inviting Martha to look beyond her present circumstances and to look at the big picture. Martha had faith in Christ, but the entire chapter is about Christ's claim to be the resurrection and the life. 
not only for Martha, but for every person. Jesus Christ is the focus of the chapter, and the goal was that the Father would be glorified in this. Later on in John's gospel, he writes, the whole purpose of his book, which is, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Martha believed in Jesus as the Son of God, so the question is, who do you believe Jesus is? It's a question I'm sure you've been asked over and over, but it needs to always be asked. Is he a good man, a good teacher? Does he have wisdom? But Jesus says, I am God. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Jesus' words always evoke a response. And so the question for us is, what is our response? There's no neutral third position here. Those who claim to be indifferent to Christ are really in opposition to Christ. He who is not with me is against me. Martha proclaimed her faith in Christ. But what about Mary? We can't forget her. Look down at verse 32. When Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. These are the same words that Martha used. They were an expression of sorrow at the grief over their brother's death. But it's important that we understand they're not a reproach to Christ. They were not calling Christ on the carpet, as it were, but they were an expression of the intense pain and sorrow that they were experiencing at the death of their loved one. And Jesus was deeply moved. And the rest of the chapter chronicles that amazing story of how Christ raises Lazarus from the dead. It's an amazing story. It must have been a chaotic time. But I don't want to stay in those details of Lazarus because this miracle was Jesus' evidence of his claim that I am the resurrection and I am the life. And this is the foundational truth for Martha and for all of us. Why does this truth matter for us in a session for high school girls? Because the issues that we talk about that are typically associated with teenage girls, whether it's dating, modesty, marriage, discipleship, whatever they are, they're evidence of that claim of understanding who is Christ. It's like if you have a cold and you're sick and you get all stuffy and you sound like this because you can't breathe. What do you do? You take a decongestant and that medicine then clears up your nose so that you can talk and you sound normal. But that addresses the symptom, right? That doesn't address the issue, which is that you've got to take antibiotics to stop the cold. So I don't want to address those issues that are the symptoms of life as a teenage girl in our culture. Those are the symptoms of the heart issue, which is who do you say Jesus is? The principle here is that Christ alone is the source of eternal life. And the application is where do you stand before God? Who do you say Christ is? not who your parents say Christ is, not who Josh or your pastor says Christ is. Who do you say Christ is? The symptoms will all eventually go away. But the cause of the problem has to be addressed, and that's what we're about. Gals, we're not here to address the symptoms that can be addressed by lowering a hem or raising a neckline or doing other things. That's the easy part. The hard part is to look at the heart and examine the motives. 
And that's where we're going to end with our third text in John 12. Go one chapter over. It's the third story of Mary and Martha. And this time the greater focus is on Mary. This episode, like the context of the other two, was critically important in where we see Jesus going as Redeemer, as he was moving to Jerusalem, moving to the cross. Remember that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. The spiritual leaders were united in their desire to kill him. Look back at chapter 11 and verse 53 that says, Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize Christ. Jesus knew what was before him. Jesus knew what was facing him. The opposition, rejection, the hatred, the denial of those whom he loved. He knew that trial, torture, crucifixion were just days away. And yet Jesus was willing to go because it was God's will and God's plan of redemption for mankind. So six days before Passover, Jesus returns to Bethany, that familiar village where he has been in our two texts. And from the account in John 12, there was a supper that was given in his honor. Read verses one through three with me. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. They made him a supper there. Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This context is that Martha and Mary had just seen one of Jesus's greatest miracles when he raised their brother from the dead. They heard the claim that Jesus made that I am the resurrection and the life. There is no eternal life apart from me. They understood that Jesus was God. They knew that the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill Christ, and yet their love for Christ was so strong in the face of all of the opposition their love for Christ was so compelling that they gathered together to host a supper to express their gratitude. Christ's claims always demand a response. And in this story in John 12 of Mary's anointing of Jesus, her response was a humble and a sacrificial act that expressed her love and her faith in Jesus as her Savior and as her shepherd. Mary took this pound of very expensive perfume. It was identified as pure nard. It's an oil that comes from a plant that is native to the mountains in northern India. That's part of the reason why it was so costly. It had to come a very long distance to get there. It was in a container of, of alabaster. In the Gospel of Mark, it says that this perfume was estimated to be the equivalent of one year's wages. And what did Mary do? She took all of what she had, all of what was most important, all of what was valuable. And she honored Christ and worshiped him through her act of humble submission to kneel at his feet, to pour this oil on him and wash his feet with her hair. She not only gave from all of the material things that she had, but you need to understand that context as well, that in this culture, for a woman to be doing this in front of a man was just not acceptable. That was against their culture. She was willing to humble herself, to go against what her culture guidelines were, to once again be at Christ's feet as an act of worship to him. 
But again, let's not forget about Martha. So look at what Martha was doing in this text. There's only one reference to her in this text. And it says that the supper was made and Martha was serving. There's no other mention of her. But Martha's encounter with Jesus in the chapter that we just read, when Jesus had said, who do you say that I am? Do you believe this? Her encounter with Christ changed her. The text doesn't provide any other details. But notice that unlike the story that we started with in the Gospel of Luke, when Martha was all angry and bothered, and it expressed itself in her words and her actions, in this recording in the Gospel of John, there's no record of unhappiness, there's no bitterness, there's no angry words. There is only the notation that she served. Martha no longer seems resentful of Mary's devotion to Christ. She doesn't complain. We can't miss the transformation in her life, in her speech, and in her actions. Christ changed Martha, and it made a difference in how she lived. So the question for us is whether Christ changes us, and has it made a difference in how we live? While Mary's response to Christ was humble sacrifice, kneeling at his feet, Martha's response was heartfelt service. She was doing what she knew how to do best. Her love and devotion were expressed the best way that she knew how, which was through serving. The principle here is that true love for Christ means giving him the best of who we are and of what we have. So the application for us is whether we are grateful for what God has given us, not the things only, but for who he is. Are we grateful for who Christ is? And how is that expressed in our lives today? All three texts reveal Christ, but the central focus for Christ is in John 11, in that middle text, when Jesus is Lord, Redeemer, the creator of life who conquered death, the one who proclaimed that he was the Messiah, the chosen one. So in the first text about, Mary's, about Martha's work and Mary's worship, Jesus affirmed that his words bring eternal life. In the second text about raising Lazarus, Jesus reveals himself as creator and sustainer of all life, the one who was, who is, and who will be to come. In the third text about Mary's humble service, her sacrifice, and Martha's quiet service, which was quite a change, Jesus shows that he's worthy of all worship, praise, honor, and glory. So our question is, what's our response to Christ? This family knew Christ as Savior. This family knew Christ as Shepherd. And how do you know Christ? Sometimes we turn to Christ as our last resort when we have problems, and there are things that we need him to deal with, and we have a test and say, Lord, please help me with this. We find ourselves in bond with no other way out when we've exhausted all of our own possibilities about what we can do. Or do we say that Jesus is our Savior, our Shepherd, the Lord of our life who cares about every detail and is just waiting for us to come to him? Only Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead and only Jesus can give us a new birth cause us to be reborn again. His offering is eternal life, and our option is what do we say to him? So what choices are you making today that will impact your life tomorrow and next week and the weeks to come and in the years to come? You can't wait until you're in the middle of hard times to think about who is God. 
His mercy, His grace are lavish, abundant, and free. And your choice is what to do with it. Remember our principles from these texts. What we believe is more important than what we do. Christ alone is the source of eternal life, and true love for Christ means giving Him the best of who we are and what we have. So the application for us is to commit to change, commit to be different. When we're distracted like Martha was, that turns into discontentment. When we are devoted like Mary was, that turns into delight. So the question is whether you want to be distracted or devoted. What choice are you going to make to be distracted or devoted? That will change the way you think, that will change the way you talk, and that will change what you do. My husband and I have two dogs who are big black Labradors. They weigh most of, more than most of you. And we have trained them when we are feeding them that they need to sit while I prepare their meal. And then I put the food down, but they have to wait until I tell them that it's okay. And the training involves, I go out of the room, I go out of the house, I go into the garage, I do whatever. And the expectation is that they sit and they wait until I come back in and tell them that it's okay for them to eat. Those dogs are so focused on that food that they don't move. I hate to tell you that my dogs drool, so the longer they wait, their drool gets longer and longer, and it's not attractive, but they will not move because they are so focused on what they know is coming. They do not move until I come back and I say, okay, and then they go. I am suggesting that we be like dogs. And that we be so focused that there is nothing that is going to move us away from what we know is important. There's nothing that will distract us from what we need to be devoted to Christ. There's one last text that I want to turn to. At the end of the Gospel of John, we need to stay our mind on Christ. In John chapter 21, verses 20 to 23, the context of this is that Jesus is resurrected. He has accepted that payment on the cross for our sins. He came out of the tomb. He triumphed over death and sin. And he was spending his last physical moments with his disciples. He spent particular time with Peter, who again was a little bit like Martha. Jesus was preparing Peter for the persecution that was coming. But Peter was easily distracted. And so in verse 20, all of this is going on. Jesus has said to Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? That's the context. And then in verse 20, Peter turns around. He saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter saw him and said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. These are the last words of Christ that John recorded in his gospel. You follow me. We need to put away those distractions of looking at the people around us and saying, they're more godly, they're more beautiful, they have more, they know more people, whatever. We can't compare ourselves to each other. We can't look horizontally. We need to look vertically and look at God. 
We need to focus our life because when we focus our life, we focus our vision on loving God. And that begins with knowing God, knowing Him as Savior who has taken our place on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, knowing Him as Shepherd who is the one who sustains us every day through every detail that we face. It requires a choice, a deliberate choice every day about how we will live with our whole heart, our whole mind. It's not a hobby. It's not something we do at camp and then it's over. It's a way of life. It takes study, thought, deliberate action each day to be mature in Christ. So the issues that we talk about as teenage girls, about dating and discipleship and marriage, purity, those things are important, but they are symptoms of what is the condition of our heart. So it's easy for us to be distracted by those things and then forget what we need, which is the one thing that's important, which is to sit at the feet of Christ, to learn from Him, and to worship Him. So as we close, I want you just to close your eyes, and I'm going to take a couple of seconds here for you to just do business with God. We are in the business of souls. So take a moment and talk to God. What is it that you need to face with Him? Close your eyes and talk with God, and I will close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to you, we come to you humbled because we see the greatness of who you are and the reality of who we are. Forgive us, Lord, for having more focus on who we are than on who you are. Forgive us, Lord, for the sins that we love. Forgive us for holding on to what surrounds us rather than to clinging to you, the one who sustains us. Father, may this be a time when we look at our lives and we see what needs to be changed. We see whether we need to come to you, to come to the cross, to ask for forgiveness for our sins, to accept you as our Savior. We need to look at our lives and see what needs to be changed, what sort of spiritual reboot we need, We need to get beyond what immediately faces us, not to be so nearsighted that we only see ourselves and think of ourselves, but to look beyond that, to see the great and mighty and awesome God who created the world and sustains it. Father, we desire to be engaged in only the one thing that is needful, which is to know you, to love you, and to serve you. I pray for these girls today that you would work in their hearts. Help us to be different. We know that when we hear your word, we are changed. May we go out now changed people. May the world be changed because we serve you and we love you. We thank you for this time together, Lord, and 
May you be honored. May you be glorified by what takes place today. We ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.